You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Offscript. My name is Stephen Edgington. Is the American Republic under threat, or is America more united than it first appears? To discuss the state of the Republic, Joe Biden and conservatism, I'm joined by the historian and classicist Victor Davis Hanson. Is the American Republic under threat? It's said to be under threat, uh, mostly by the left, but uh, it's a pretty resilient form of government. It's the only one of its type. It's the oldest democracy or constitutional republic in the country. It's weathered the Civil War, the Great Depression, the 60s Cultural Revolution. The problem we're having right now is that it is not working for the left. And so when it doesn't work for the left, they say the republic is in danger and they want to change the institutions. So they want to get rid of the 180-year filibuster, the 150-year nine justice Supreme Court, the 233rd year of the Electoral College, the 60 years of the 50-state union, because they feel that the electorate is drifting away from them and their agendas, which they've implemented the last year and a half especially, do not warrant on any poll 50% support. And their president is at a historic low at 29% for a first-term president. So that's what we're told. But I, when you actually look, our elections being held, agreed on winners taking power, is legislation being passed? Yes, yes. It's, I think the lockdown, the quarantines set the Western world in general a little crazy, but I think we're recovering from that. How seriously should we take them when they say they're going to pack the courts or add DC as a 51st state and change the sort of, as you say, these historic kind of elements of the American Republic and Constitution, because they've been saying these things, I guess, for a while now, for the last few years at least, but they haven't done them yet. We should take them very seriously, because if you look at the Supreme Court, which was their darling for the last half century, because it was a legislative, executive, and judicial branch all in one, and when an occasional Republican president wished to nominate justices that would bring a little bit of balance, they flipped. So Earl Warren flipped, and all the way to David Souter and John Paul Stevens and Potter Stevens, they all flipped. And now they don't. And so all of a sudden, they want to pack the court. And to pack the court, they just need to eliminate the filibuster and get every Democrat on board. I don't know if they will or not. And then they can flip it. And then they can vote to restore the filibuster, which they said they would do, because they're going to be a minority party and they'll need it in the fall. I never in my lifetime, I don't think any of you foreign observers thought that mobs would congregate around the homes of Supreme Court justices, as they have in the case of Gorsuch and Thomas and uh, others, and uh, especially Kavanaugh, and then intimidate them when that's a federal offense and Merrick Garland district attorney is not prosecuting. We never thought that Joe Biden would go overseas and attack the legitimacy of the court in front of his Spanish host. We never thought that they would talk about a 10-year-old who was forced to have an abortion because she could not obtain it in Ohio, and she went to Indiana. This was a result of incest, perhaps. And yet, from this point on, even liberal fact-checkers can't find the victim. They can't find the Ohio State Attorney General said this morning he's trying to desperately find the perpetrator to indict him. We have no information at all. 
I never thought that you would leak a confidential memo of a preliminary ruling, which is a felony, which the court did. And this is all in the context that the Biden revolutionary sort of government approves of this. They don't say the transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, said he had no problem with swarming Justice Kavanaugh as he ate dinner at a restaurant. And of course, we know it's asymmetrical. If the Republicans were going to the home of Sonia Sotomayor, or they were leaking documents, or they were threatening to change the size of the court that's been there since, I think, 1816, they, the left would be furious. But it's all predicated on the notion, as we all know from history, modern and ancient, that the left feels that it's morally and intellectually superior, and therefore those exalted ends can justify almost any means to obtain them. Do you think that there are exaggerations on social media and in the traditional press in terms of the threat to democracy? And whether you're talking about January 6th, which, by the way, is what they would say to play devil's advocate. They would say, well, you you mentioned about the mob surrounding Kavanaugh. What about the mob that went to inside the Capitol building? I think you're right. When you look at that empirically, everybody condemns a bunch of buffoonish demonstrators that broke into the House chambers and desecrated. We all want them to be prosecuted. But At that point, we should have a disinterested body of inquiry. And everybody thought that we would have a committee and they would look at this period in American history where we're assaulting federal property, i.e., let's look at the Capitol riot on January 6th. Let's look at the riot on May 31st, 2020 that burned the Episcopal Historic Church, tried to spill over from Lafayette Square and storm the White House grounds, which sent the President of the United States into a bunker. And the Secret Service were out, man, let's look at a federal courthouse burned in Portland with impunity. So we could have that inquiry. And then we have never in modern history said in the House that the minority party cannot put its members on a committee. The speaker always defers and says, you pick your members, we pick ours. But Nancy Pelosi, de facto, her criterion for membership of the January 6th committee was, we will take Republican House members that A, are not viable in the fall and will not be here next year, and B, voted to impeach Donald Trump. That left only two or three people, and they were, uh, the others were disqualified. So there is no cross-examination. There's no special counsel that presents a, a report. There's just a one-sided barrage, and it's intended to make Donald Trump inert. It might be ironic because some of the Republicans want him to be inert and have another candidate, and they may fulfill the Republican dream. But you can really see what I'm talking about illustrated very quickly by they're not interested in the number of FBI informants that were there on January 6th, even though Michael Rosenberg, who was the New York Times point man and had won a Pulitzer Prize, and he he said in an unguarded moment that it was kind of a joke. Everybody overreacted. He said there were FBI agents galore, and he thought it was just a, it was just a picnic, a frolic, a buffoonish group of people with cow horns and such. We've never, I don't know why we we withheld the name of Officer Bird, who shot lethally Ashley Babbitt, a 105-pound person who went, who committed a misdemeanor by break, going through an already broken window. And uh, we didn't get any information, even though it's common practice in the United States, the moment any officer lethally shoots an unarmed suspect, their picture, name, and IDs are plastered all over social media, the internet, and papers. That didn't happen. So there's something there about January 6th and the communications about uh, the need for security between Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol. They're not released, the 14,000 hours of videos. If they lose the House, and I think they will, the the left, then I think you're going to see a massive number of investigations about what actually happened on January 6th. It's not going to whitewash the people who desecrated the Capitol, but it's going to be, I think, very interesting because there's, there's something there that the left does not want to talk about. Now, let's put these debates into their historical perspective. Recently, it was the 4th of July, your Independence Day. And as someone who's interested in British history and the French Revolution, and I'm sort of constitutional monarchist, as it were, can you persuade me why that American Revolution was so important and why it's been so successful uh, since all the way back in 1776? Well, I mean, I'm not a that we have sort of modern criteria when we look at countries that chose not to do what we did at that period in history, Canada, Australia, a little later, they're 
viable countries are very successful and they operate within the British sphere of influence still and with parliamentary democracies. But you could argue that this system that we inaugurated was a more radical system and it gave more personal liberty to the individual. And it had the effect, whether intended or not, to draw people all over the world who felt that they were rejected or they had little opportunity and they had boundless energy and they came here under this system with the Bill of Rights. And we have very peculiar things that you, you people don't have over in the Second Amendment, cherish the right of arms, and we don't have really libel laws. So it's a wide open arena and it has its drawbacks and dangers, but it has a, a restlessness. So if you look at criteria all over the world, I mean, we're, we're in an age of China ascendance and American decline, but we have 330 million Americans and they produce almost twice the goods and services of 1.4 billion Chinese. If you look at the 200 universities that are ranked by the uh, Times Education Supplement or the University of Tokyo, almost uh, the top 20, I think 15 or 16 are American and in a failed state like California, I think we have five in the top 30. Silicon Valley dominates the world. It's got $6 trillion of market capitalization and 10 square miles. So the U.S. military, even with its debacle in Afghanistan, is the largest, most lethal military in the world. So there are things about this country that are not explicable just by its size or population if you compare it to India or China or Russia. So it has a dynamism, but it's also it requires uh, a stern hand as an executive. Otherwise, these propensities can get out of control. And they have at various times during the 60s and even on the right during the McCarthy period because uh, of this restlessness and pushing against norms of behavior. And other countries have much more careful class considerations. Shame, you don't do that. That's not proper behavior. The United States has sort of obliterated the idea of class, even though there is class distinctions. Our idea is that anybody who's a welder or a mechanic can go right up to Bill Gates at the airport and say, you know, blank, blank you. And so there's this familiarity among the classes and there's this dynamism. And it, it's kind of, it can be a very dangerous mix. And when you add a multiracial woke element in the recent, it, it's very volatile and it requires, you know, constant reaffirmation that we're a melting pot and we have common values and we don't, we're not a blood and soil country, but it's, nobody's ever tried this before. Brazil and India are multiracial democracies. They're not doing too well, but the idea that Barack Obama could be chancellor of Germany or prime minister of Japan is just a joke. He couldn't be, wouldn't have never happened. And if I want to go to China and say, I, Victor Hansen, as a so-called white person, I want to be a Chinese citizen. That could not happen. It would not be fully accepted. It wouldn't be fully accepted in a lot of places. And I don't think that the community where I live, which is about 85% Mexican-American, any of them who identified as such would have a successful career in continental Europe, maybe in the Anglos sphere in Britain, perhaps in Australia and Canada, but not not in continental Europe. From what I can tell, I've, I've been there 50 or 60 times and just I just don't think that would be viable. So it's a different type of paradigm. Now that revolution and the constitution that was created was one of the most extraordinary documents throughout the Enlightenment and, and history really. But obviously it sort of it links back to the Magna Carta and other really important constitutional documents in Britain and, and, and in the Western world. But one of the things that I think some Brits, particularly Andrew Roberts, the historian, wants to sort of get right about the American War of Independence is this idea that George the Third was some sort of terrible tyrant, this authoritarian monarch who was imposing these awful taxes on the Americans. And Andrew Roberts argues in his latest book that nothing could be further from the truth, that George III was benevolent, and that the American revolutionaries were using propaganda to rile up their troops, as it were, to, to claim that George III was this terrible tyrant figure. But in fact, they had other motives to declare independence from Britain, which were fantastic motives. And, and Andrew Roberts admits, you know, this is one of the first revolutions in history where the people are not rebelling against a tyrant, but they're rebelling for reasons of, of freedom and liberty and sovereignty, but also economic interests and other th things like that. So do you accept now, can you accept uh, Andrew Roberts's hypothesis that George III was no tyrant? 
I, I agree a lot with Andrews. He's a colleague of mine at the Hoover Institution. I know him very well. I think he had a point. What I think his point distilled down to its essence would be for an American is, look, you Americans, by the standards, values, and norms of the time, as we see in other British colonies, especially, as I said, you know, New Zealand or Australia, which weren't really colonies, and the state Canada, or what would happen in the 19th century. You were given a level of freedom that was just amazing. Nobody ever, ever had it. The Spanish, the French didn't do this. But you redefined your desires or your expectations to such an incredible degree. All men are created equal and you were going you were intent on opening this up to the world and the logic of the declaration the constitution was really an abolishment of the class system and personal liberty at the expense of i guess internal cohesion if that was necessary and the result was that the colonists felt and they were all products of the british enlightenment scottish enlightenment and they, and they acknowledge that. There was many more deists that in the British tradition, but the result of that is they had expectations that the crown could not legitimately satisfy. And they tried to work with the colonists, and the colonists at some point said, look, we're going in a different direction, and we're going to put a high price on enlightenment expression and freedom, and we're going to libel the crown if we want to we can do and the british found that intolerable and then the war came and the passions arose and each side had propaganda so i think he's he's on the right track if the united states had stayed within the british system it would probably be a sort of like a large canada today canada is a very humane nice place but there is a reason why other than size that people in canada that are in the artistic music community, tech community, they come to the United States. And it's not just climate. It, there, there's other reasons, that dynamism that we talked about earlier. But the crown, if you look at 500 revolutions in history, the uh, the target of the American Revolution was probably the most liberal and accommodating of any of any so-called colonial power. Do you think that Americans understand that revolution and the Constitution today? Do you think people are are educated on these things in a deep way? Or is there sort of lots no, of misconceptions? No. They don't know anything about it. I grew up in a rural high, uh, rural high school, rural grammar school, where there was 10% of the students were so-called white, but they were traditional education. We all read the Constitution. We all know this was in the 1960s and early 70s. And we were all got a very good education. That was thrown out during the 60s cultural revolution. And we had these studies courses gender studies, peace studies, leisure studies, uh, environmental studies, and they were therapeutic sociological classes. And they crowded out the core, not just civics, but also English and math so, and history. So Americans, if, you, if we were to walk on the street of any major city and ask somebody who was George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, and I don't just mean the name, but just say who he was, they would have no idea, they being the majority of people, much less if you ask what the difference between the executive or judicial plan. This is part of the, the school system and this Western malaise of equality of result and the idea that if you have only an equality of opportunity and you have a strict meritocratic system, then a larger and larger number of people are not going to achieve the median and therefore the system has to be destroyed and the standards abolished so that they will be radically equal. And this, in American history, these, these tendencies, when you have open migration or you have enormous civil rights movements, the, then the, these pressures occur. It's like Aristotle said, once a man votes in a democracy and he's equal with his vote to every other citizen, then the logic is that he believes he should be equal in other, every other aspect of his life economic, political, social, cultural. And that's sort of contradictions of radical democracy. And we see it here. And so if a person is not exactly equal in the United States to someone else, then there has to be, for that so-called victim, there has to be an identifiable victimizer. And we will go after that person, our, our institution. And that's a pathology that's, that's plagued democracy for a long time. And usually what happens... The bad things that happen in democracy usually happen in the more radical ones first. So we don't have the constraints 
the traditions, the knowledgeable population that other democracies have. And so whatever is happening here usually tends to exude and go elsewhere. So is this the last days of Rome? I don't know. Everybody says, when they say that, I, I ask myself, well, which Rome are you talking about? The sterile, inert last days of the Republic, when people were satisfying their appetites, you had a bankrupt elite, and people of the time said that you would never recover from Nero and Caligula and Tiberius and the year of the four emperors. And then suddenly you get Vespasian, Titus, and that ushers in Nerva, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius. And Gibbon says this is the greatest period of human prosperity in history. And there was the, that hundred year period. At, and then it starts to decline. And that cyclical process went on for 700 years continued for another thousand in the east under the Byzantines. So we have an enormous uh, ability to self-correct. The problem that we're facing now is in this modern age, we have an enormous amount of debt and we d we're starting to politicize debt. We feel that debt does not have to be repaid. Mo modern monetary theory has got us into this hyperinflation. We're starting to identify by our superficial appearance with this hyphenation that's gone mad. I am Latina, I am Black, I am white, I am Asian, rather than I am American. So there's some fundamental problems that were there in the past, but I guess the, the COVID crisis or the internet, instant communications, or whatever these outside stimuli are, they've, they, they've made it at a crisis level. And we, we're waiting for a Marcus Aurelius type of figure, a Lincoln-esque figure that say, wait a minute, this is not sustainable. You don't have a country if you don't have a southern border. You cannot have 8 9% hyperinflation. You have you have the energy, develop it as you transition to other fuels. You cannot just abandon $80 billion in equipment and hand them over to terrorists in Afghanistan and not expect people like the Chinese or the Russians not to take advantage of that sense of lost deterrence. So we need somebody like that. We don't have them now. And we'll see in the next election. There is an argument that today things move much more quickly in terms of decline because of globalization and the internet. So obviously Rome, as you said, took hundreds and hundreds of years to finally collapse or to even to move over to, um, to the east. But today this may happen within, I don't know, within a few centuries, or within a few hundred, yeah, few, I, few ten, tens of years. Yeah, that's, I mean, if, if George Floyd, if a Officer Chauvin had his foot on his neck or his knee on his neck and he dies, the news of that in any other age would have been in local papers by another, take a week, there would be wire service. But before that, nobody would know about it. But one little incident can ignite an entire country and vice versa. And the left seems to think that this is a very valuable thing to have these iconic totem incidents that they can inflame people. As I mentioned, the 10-year-old, dubious story of a 10-year-old girl who was raped and had to go out of state. But it's a double-edged sword. So the right can do it too. Anybody can do it. And the left doesn't seem to understand that. And what's happening now is the right is using iconic stories. Uh, yesterday, there was a bus in San Francisco where the school children got off and it delivered them right in the middle of a homeless camp with needles and crime and filth and feces. And that was blared all over the United States. And so I think what I'm trying to say is that the left feels that they can have this revolutionary movement and change the constitution, change the customs and traditions and get a radical egalitarian woke society. But they don't understand that once they destroy those institutions for everybody, then it becomes an Athenian democracy, what any 51% of people want to do on any given day. And I do not think that the left has 51%. From my reading of polls and just history in the United States, it tends to be a center-right country still. And what's really a radical, almost revolutionary development is that the slow process of 17 or 18 percent of the population of so-called Hispanics, very diverse uh, from Mexico, Central America, Venezuela, Cuba, but they were starting to reassert certain values of family, religion, tradition, and they had all come from socialist countries that they, they left on their own volition. And the left always thought that by opening borders and allowing their friends and family to come across and then giving them generous benefits, they would have a captive constituency. But the problem was that in America, they, they became upwardly mobile and they began to get property and they began to have communities and they wanted what the white community has and they were getting it at the Asian community has.
and all of a sudden the left's uh, social, they have the margin of error now to say, you know what, the border's not that important to us. We want to close because we're impacted by these uh, mass influxes. They come into our schools, they overrun them. We have crime, we have cartels, we have gangs. And you know what, I don't think transgenderism or windmills or radical third trimester abortions are as important to me as gas, inflation, uh, crime. And so they're starting, I think we're going to see one of the great revolutions in American history in the next four years. They're starting to completely abandon the Democratic Party. And the point that I'm making is the Democratic Party in its hubris had so alienated the white working class, which used to be its mainstay. And that's, you know, 70% of the country is so-called white and about two-thirds of that are working class, that they cannot afford to lose any of their Black, Latino, Asian coalition. So we're seeing some things that could happen in November and then 2024 we haven't seen together. And that would be a dilemma for the left because the conservative surge would come from young, non-white people. And I don't think anybody in their right mind ever expected that. Now, this conservative instinct against revolutions and radicals and revolutionaries has been a historic concept for conservatives. I mean, go all the way back to the French Revolution, the great speeches and, and writings of Burke. Uh, obviously, the American Revolution is an exception in a way. But today, there are many conservatives, including one I interviewed recently, Andrew Sullivan, and he says that conservatives need to make sure that they are themselves not becoming revolutionaries and that he sees Trump and Trump voters and Trump himself as a sort of revolutionary populist and that it's important that we remember what our instincts are. And I made the argument to him that, well, maybe things are so bad that you do need a bit of revolution. You do need to, for example, go through the FBI and try and replace the people, whatever, or go through all the institutions that have been captured. So, so there's an interesting debate, isn't there, between conservatives as to whether they should themselves be revolutionary or be reformers or radicals, or whether we should just let, sort of let things pass, as it were. I don't know Andrew Sullivan. I've met him a couple of times. I think I remember meeting him, but he, I, I don't consider him a conservative at all. I, during the Obama years, he cheered on the Obama revolution. By the Obama revolution, I just don't mean moving the country to the left. I mean, unleashing. And so in some ways, the, the Obama administration was a revolutionary. They were the first administration since the Nixon administration to use the institutions of power, the enforcement intelligence agencies, as for political purposes. And they knew all about it. And Barack Obama was uh, president when the FBI and people were spying on Michael Flynn and, and inter interrogated him and said that he had done nothing wrong. And yet they pushed that and pushed that and pushed that. So, and then you know, I, as I look at people on the left now, I think Andrew Sullivan should realize that the people who are the pillars of money and power and the use and abuse of that are on the left right now. I mean, Barack Obama gives, he ventures out of his Calorama or Martha's Vineyard or new Oahu mansion occasionally to lecture people on their illiberality, or Bill Gates does, who's the second richest man in the world. The Democratic Party has become a party of the very wealthy, powerful who feel that because they're left wing and they virtue signal their liberality, that that gives them the ability to enjoy the wealth that they've accumulated and to use it in ways that the Republicans had never even dreamed of. If Andrew Sullivan means, are there fringe groups on the right, Proud Boys and those? Yes, I suppose they are. But if in real numbers... There's two, two main differences. In real numbers, they're dwarfed by BLM and Antifa. But more importantly, the major institutions of power in the United States, social media, the regular media, the universities, corporations, professional sports. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. They have green-lighted the left-wing revolutionaries. They can freely use Facebook to plan to burn down a building. And the investigative institutions are all over the right. This right-wing fringe group is identified. I mean, when you have the Secretary of Defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs state that they're going through the ranks to audit to see if there's anybody that's full of white rage when they have no documentation, they have no evidence that that's true. They didn't say, well, we're also simultaneously going to go through and see if the violence we've seen on the street with BLM and Antifa has permeated the military. They didn't say that. And they said it in a very strange way because they're, then they said they wanted the military to look like the United States proportionally I guess, representative. And I thought to myself, 75% of the dead in Afghanistan and 75 roughly in Iraq were white males. So according to your own logic, you're going after a rubric that you have smeared as potentially revolutionary when you at the same time expect the lower middle classes to go into Iraq and inordinately join combat units and die at double their numbers in the population, then according to your own logic, they shouldn't do that. So there is no revolutionary movement on the right that I know of. I don't know anybody in the right who is who is saying right now, let us dismantle these institutions. Let's get rid of the filibuster. Let's get in a couple more states. Let's get rid of the electoral college. Let's have a national voting law to override the constitutional rights of states to set balloting protocols. Let's pack the court. Uh, when Trump was president, I didn't hear him say, we could really solve this problem with 15 justices. Let's get, and I don't remember Trump uh, sicking the FBI on reporters, James O'Keefe. I don't remember the FBI becoming the personal retrieval service of the president of the United States when his son loses his laptop or his daughter loses her diary. So the politicalization of our institutions took place under the left. And in terms of importance, that was much more dangerous than what Trump's tweets were or what these crazy proud boys do or the buffoons in the House chambers on January 6th. I think Sullivan knows that. I think he's transitioning back as a conservative voice. A lot of our spokesmen go back and forth. And the elephant in the room is the figure of Donald Trump. On the one hand, he was the most successful conservative president in 50 years. On the other hand, he completely rejected the bipartisan establishment, Republican and Democrat, partly because he was not a part of it, partly because they wanted no part of him, and partly because his personal comportment was at times crude and crass. And we'll see what happens if there is a subsequent figure that incorporates the Trump revolution, that is the appeal to the middle classes of all different backgrounds, but does not seem to be necessary to go onto Twitter or Facebook and to be gratuitously mean and so-called. That said, we'll see if that person also has that outsider status and fire in the belly to take on the, that system. That system has to be taken on. It's huge, the unelected. I do want to talk about DeSantis, who I think is prob- probably who you're talking about um, in a moment. Yeah. But just, just very briefly, you said the institutions of the United States that have been captured by the left, and you gave a long list of those institutions. One yes. of those institutions, which you mentioned earlier, hasn't, distinctly hasn't been captured, and that's the Supreme Court. And as you say, that's been flipped from being a liberal-dominated Supreme Court to a heavily conservative Supreme Court. And, you know, you have to give Donald Trump a lot of credit for that because he appointed three conservative justices. Do you think that this is the greatest victory for American conservatism as a movement in the last 50 years? I do think it is. And I think we know it is because the 10 percent of the elite and they are the elite, the never Trumpers. This is the one thing they're fixated on. So when you look at the American commentariat, all they're writing for the last month is do not give credit to Donald Trump for reporting Gorsuch and Kavanaugh 
and Barrett Comey. Don't give him credit. He didn't flip it. No, no, he didn't. But when you actually look at the record of his three justices, they're not 100% conservative, but they have not done a John Roberts. They have not done a David Souter. They have not done a John Paul Stevens. They haven't done what every other Republican, Anthony Kennedy, every, you know, even Sandra Day O'Connell, every single Republican picked a justice who, when they got to the court, they made the necessary adjustments for the culture or the landscape of Washington, Georgetown, whatever you want to talk about. And they became increasingly part of the left-wing court. He didn't. He deliberately outsourced that to the Federalist Society. And he said, I want conservative, strict constructionists. Give me a list. He didn't know any of them. He never met them. And then nobody believed that he would actually honor that commitment. He did to the letter. He single-handedly changed the court to a constructionist uh, reversion back to constitutional principle. He got very little credit for it, but he did that. Let's talk about DeSantis and Trump. Now, I imagine for many conservative voters and academics and activists in America, they want DeSantis to run and Trump not to run. And for the reason and for the following reason, as you mentioned, Trump was unappealing to many voters. His approval ratings are still low and he is crass and he can be rude. And as you say, he's got many advantages, all the Supreme Court picks and all the other foreign policy achievements he has are fantastic. But as a personality, he is divisive and his actions during the last election, post-election period, were very controversial at the time. So do you think that there's any chance that DeSantis could could run and Trump and, and, and beat Trump or Trump wouldn't run? Because it looks like Trump is going to run. Yeah, I think the betting odds are that he's going to run. And we're in a dilemma because people say, and you, I think you reviewed the dilemma that conservatives have very carefully. What we know is that nobody is running on a McCain-Romney agenda. Nobody is saying, well, we need more people. Let's open the border. That wasn't too bad. Or we've got to have radical transitions to green energy. So when Mitt Romney opens his mouth and articulates a position, it has zero support. So the Trump agenda, for better or for worse, is now the orthodox agenda of conservatives. Everybody agrees with that. Then the question is, who is the best taskmaster to imp- implement that? And Trump did pretty well. I wouldn't He wouldn't have had the agenda in the first place enacted. But people were we- weary. And now they're in a period of introspection where we're worried because the media just went crazy and Trump brought them out of the woodwork. And if that's so, maybe we should just not be worried and fight them back now they've exposed themselves. Or why don't we have somebody who is more subtle and can not just push these gratuitous buttons, but be as direct in implementing the agenda? And I think the $64,000 question that nobody knows is, would a character figure like a DeSantis, Pompeo, Tom, whoever they are, would they be able to fill an arena with people? Would they have the fire in the belly or would they be contextualized and tempted and compromised is the way that all politicians are? We look back in the 2016, it was the greatest, we were told, the greatest field of conservative nominees we've ever had, would-be nominees. And remember that Scott Walker was very similar to DeSantis. He was a very effective purple state governor. He had fought the unions. He was absolutely uh, unyielding in their opposition. They tried to smear him and everybody thought he's tough. He's run a state. He's dealt with the left and he completely imploded on the stage. So what I'm getting at is we don't know how DeSantis will do. He's doing very well right now. And he's very combative and he doesn't yield and he's he's well spoken. His resume is sterling, but we don't know how he'll do on this Sturman Drang of 16, 18 months. So we're gonna, I think everybody should have an open mind. We don't know what Trump is going to do. We don't know if Trump, if it's within him to say, you know what, I had the agenda, I have the, the fire, but I'm gonna be 80 years old almost, 79. I'll be 83 if I were to be elected. Maybe I should change my behavior a bit or something. It's all a mystery right now. What is not a mystery is that there is no one on the left in the foreseeable horizon that is going to be a viable candidate and that can change. But people look at Kamala Harris. The biggest problem on the left is how do we get rid of Joe Biden right now and not have Kamala Harris because constitutionally that we have no other alternative. And I'm not just saying that 
to be flamboyant, but we didn't hear one word about Hunter Biden's laptop's contents. We were told it was Russian disinformation. It was alleged. And all of a sudden, the last week, the Washington Post, the New York Times, everybody is talking about the horrendous, horrific things in the Biden laptop. And I think that will be followed by the Biden diary. And the point is, the left has decided that Biden is the road to perdition. And they want to get rid of him. They look at the 500-word vocabulary of Kamala Harris, and they say, you know what? That's not. But maybe Pete Buttigieg, he's so glib, he's so well-spoken, even though he's even harder to the left, and he would only bring them more misery because their agenda is what's turning off people. And he is just a creature of the academic lounge. But nevertheless, because he's glib and he's gay and he's got all these left-wing criteria, they're looking at him now, but they've got a constitution in front of him, of them, that makes it very hard to appoint. It's not a parliamentary system. It's difficult to be fair to Joe Biden. Maybe I'm in a bit of an echo chamber or something, but every video clip I see of him, he's just stumbling on his words. It's embarrassing. Can you just assess Joe Biden, try and be more fair than I just was then, maybe, Uh, or, or in your own words? How has his presidency gone so far? I know I keep asking this question in all our interviews, but I do think it's interesting for British viewers to understand the perspective of Americans. Well, we have to remember that you start with the premise that Joe Biden was never a nice person, never a nice person. He was always of dubious character. He was a plagiarist. He lied about his resume. He lied about uh, his standing in law school. He left the campaign, not because he was losing, but because he was discredited. In 2000. Eight, when he returned and tried it again, he left because he said a number of extraordinary things. I mean, he said that Barack Obama was the first clean, articulate black presidential candidate. And that was not true. Barbara Jordan was much more articulate than Obama. So when he went in 2020, he had these corn pop quasi racist stories that he'd made up. And he would call a person fat or lying dog-faced pony soldier, or he'd tell an African-American young person interviewing him, "You're hey, junkie, or you ain't black. Or he, told, he referred to one of his subordinates, an accomplished African-American. He said boy to him, boy. He said Negro, which is now not correct parlance. So he was never a nice guy. Okay. The third thing the problem was is it had been known since his vice presidency that he was compromised, that a senator does not end up with a compound like he has, three mansions, or a son that has somewhere 50 million, that the Chinese, the Ukrainians, the Russians, and all of these people had paid into the Biden family consortium. So he was bankrupt. So when it came around after Hillary decided not to do it again, the left was gaga because now they would have no traditional swamp creature and they had Cory Booker and they had Kamala Harris and they had Beto and Elizabeth Warren and Julio and all these people. And so guess what? We saw them for night after night for a year and a half and they were stark raving mad. They talked about opening the border. They talked about mass amnesties. They talked about modern monetary theory, forgiving one point six trillion in student debt, you name it. It scared the crap out of people. So then Joe Biden was losing because of the reasons I call. And so Jim Clyburn and Sal, they said, you know what? This guy will be an important empty vessel. He stutters, he's only a one-term president, but he gives a presentable facade given his past and we can have him carry this agenda. So. He ran and he didn't run. We had never seen a campaign like that. It was a 19th century log cabin campaign where a guy sat on his front porch and reporters came to him. He never left his garage or he went to a parking lot where there were cars. It was a joke. He had no rallies. So Trump mistakenly thought that that was a sign that he was going to lose because nobody wanted to hear him. And he didn't realize that his minions were everywhere all over the United States, getting out the vote, changing the voting laws, drop box, the whole stuff. So anyway, he he was good old Joe Biden from Scranton. We all know Joe. He said that the, there was a jungle out there in the 70s of crime. And he said that abortion should be rare. And that's what they played up. And Joe said, I want to unite everybody. But he was never that person. And, he, and so when he got elected, sure enough, his cabinet came in. They were the most radical left-wing people. They put Joe out there. 
he had reached such a degree of non compos mentes. Cognitively, he was so challenged that he couldn't read the teleprompter. Yesterday, two days ago, he said, repeat this line, the ones in brackets on a teleprompter. He can't work a five-day week. He can't get go up and down stairs. He's a very old 79. And they now want to get rid of him. And they want to get rid of him by saying he's unpopular. But he's only he's unpopular because he implemented and gave them their agenda. Had he just said this when he was united, I don't like Donald Trump. And then said privately, get that wall finished. Just and just say, we, we're going to open the border. Don't let that border be open. And then say, we're going to transition to winning. So make sure we get up to 16 million barrels. Get that keystone in Anwar going. And he said, make sure we have federal regulations and tamp down on that crime. We've got, we can't let this these DAs keep doing what they're doing. Had he done that and been as uh, cognitively challenged as he is now, people would be writing the New York Times. Yes, he forgets things, but he's a vigorous 79. He's got 70, 60% popular. He would. So it was the agenda. And then his own character flaws and age inabilities were force multipliers of that. And that's what the Democrats don't understand because they kept thinking we're going to get a young guy who's glib like Pete Buttigieg. No, <laughs> Pete Buttigieg is going to have none of the veneer and he's going to bring that left wing agenda in its full naked essence. And it's going to be it would be a disaster for them. And everybody wants him to be everybody. Everybody on the right wants a Pete Buttigieg to be the spokesman because he's sanctimonious, he's self-righteous, he's glib, and he's really incompetent. He's never done anything. Let's talk about the economy. This is a major problem for Joe Biden, obviously, coming up to the midterms. It's a problem across the West. Do you think that Biden's unpopularity is simply unfortunate for him because he's inherited a bad economic climate with COVID, with lockdowns, with rampant inflation across the Western world because of international supply chain issues, the war in Ukraine, etc. No, he, he inherited the elements of a strong recovery. It already had started when he came. People had warned him, and I don't mean just people, people on the conservative side like Biden advisors, Larry Summers, they were saying to him, you have inherited a deregulated robust economy until COVID. It's going to come back. It's there. And you're going to have an enormous demand for goods and services. And Donald Trump, for all the talk about the left, was a very liberal economic president in the sense that he ran up a trillion dollar plus deficit. And there's a lot of funny money out there. So don't do this. Do not print three to five trillion dollars. Do not subsidize labor non-participation with these fat COVID checks. Do not discourage oil and gas production. And they warned him down the line what not to do. And all. And then they said, COVID is not over with. The vaccinations have, are porous. He didn't believe that. He, all he did was saying, the pandemic's over. I developed the vaccination. We're going to do this. And he rejected and overturned the entire Trump agenda. He printed Probably it'll end up about $5 trillion. He paid people not to get home. People were terrified of COVID. 10 to 15% of people who got COVID have something called long COVID. 12 weeks and more, they're not fully able to work. So we have a record small uh, labor participation rate, 61%. And we've got enormous demand for goods and services and we cut back on Anwar, we canceled Keystone, we canceled new federal leases, we jawboned the frackers and horizontal fillers that their days were numbered, and we discouraged energy. We should be up to 16 million barrels. Had they, he just left everything alone. We would The Afghanistan debacle wouldn't have happened. Russia would not have invaded Ukraine. They had never done it during Trump. They had only done it during the Obama administration and the last years of the Bush administration. They probably wouldn't. Uh, North Korea and Iran would not be acting up right now. And the wall would be almost finished by now. And I think we wouldn't have any of these problems. We would have mostly a media that was fixated on Donald Trump's tweets, but we wouldn't have these problems. I want to end the interview by talking about a few historical comparisons to contemporary times and figures. Can we compare today to the 1970s, huge inflation, massive economic problems, high oil prices. Is Joe Biden the Jimmy Carter of today? 
I would say yes, but that would be unfair to Jimmy Carter. I don't mean that facetiously because I, I grew up with Jimmy Carter. I was in college. And the thing about Carter was, yes, it was a disaster. He printed money. He had all of these crazy left-wing policies. But once the Soviet Union went into Afghanistan, and after he had humiliated himself by appeasing the Iranian theocracy, he was the one that inaugurated the Reagan defense budget and buildup. He had the Carter Doctrine that basically said any pro-Western government in the Middle East will not be overthrown by Iran or by the Soviet Union. And he completely flipped on that. He had been a appeaser par excellence. We don't have any more inordinate fear, all that. So he flipped on that. And then the, the second thing he did as he was going out, he looked at this 12 to 14% inflation and he unleashed Paul Volcker at the Federal Reserve. And Paul Volcker, I mean, he broke the back of inflation. And that was very valuable to Reagan because when the interest rates got up to 18% and Reagan was very unpopular during the midterms of 82, Reagan just said, you know what, I, I, I just inherited Volcker. I'm just going along with the Carter policies. And then that broke the back of inflation uh, in late 83. And then we had that 7% GDP jump for six months. But Carter did change. Biden will not change. And then the other thing to remember very carefully is Carter's left was not like Biden's left. The left was sort of a 1960s, 70s, let it all hang out, flower children, free speech, flip the guy the finger on TV, say whatever you want, sex, drug. It was not, uh, we're going to put you in jail for saying that. It was not in a, a Victorian, prudish type of, of left that we have now. And they were not they were not neo-Marxists. They were kind of anarchists, kind of crazy people that with sort of a weird agenda, mostly fueled by the Vietnam War. But these are sort of dry, angry, disciplined Stalinists. They want to take away not just your guns. They want to take away your free speech. They want to have a long march through the institutions. They want to warp the Constitution. They're serious people. They're Jacobins. They're not just anarchists. Do you think that if, let's say today is the 1970s and the economic answer to that is the 1980s, as it were, with Thatcher and Reagan. I mean, I don't see, as you rightly mentioned earlier, Donald Trump printed a lot of money, increased the national debt in a huge way. Same thing in Britain. You know, the Conservatives here have been spending a lot of money. You could blame COVID for that. But, you know, certainly be the, being the end of austerity, as Boris Johnson called it when he became prime minister in 2019. Do you think that monetarism is dead? Do you think the, the ideas of Hayek and Friedman and Powell and Keith Joseph, is, is that ideology being defeated? No, I don't think so. I think what happened was the right, as the left started spending all of this money, the right for utilitarian reasons thought, well, how are we going to fight this? Everybody gets free stuff because that's very popular. And then the second, they created sort of pseudo economic theories and they went sort of like, well, we don't really know the use of GPS or social media. So if a driver is driving down the street in his Amazon and all of a sudden he's going to the wrong address, the GPS corrects it so he goes to the right address. So technology has made us so much more efficient. Uh, the computer systems, the airlines don't crack. So we are so much more productive that even though we're violating all the canons of conservative monetary theory, we're creating these vast amounts of wealth. The system has so changed that we really don't have to abide that we can afford to do this because uh, the technology has redefined work. So one worker with it, without a lot of education that goes to his lathe and he sees this computer printout and he pushes buttons or a McDonald worker that just pushes a Coke or a hamburger and doesn't make a mistake. This is revolutionized. And I think they were fooled by that because some, some things never change. And what never changes is if you, got a, if you keep borrowing, you have a $30 trillion debt. And the only way you can sustain that is with de facto zero interest. Then what you're basically doing, you're telling 150 million Americans who played by the rules and put their money in their savings account, $50,000 life savings, we're running a 3% inflation rate and you're getting 1%, you're losing 2% because that's going to the less well-off who are borrowing money for homes or something at 3%. That was a 
gradual but insidious redistribution of wealth in the United States. And now with an 8%, 9%, it's a revolutionary redistribution that people's 401ks are crashing, that they're getting 1% or 2% still on their money, but they're losing 8 or 9%. And that was a wage of spending too much money. And now the Federal Reserve is saying... Mr. Powell is saying, nobody foresaw this. Well, everybody did. We all wrote about it. But he's saying, I've got to go up with interest rates, but we don't know how to pay for it. Because once you start paying eight or if the if the inflation rate is 8.5, which it is, I don't think it really is because by 1970 calibrations, if you use the same metrics, it'd be about 12. The interest rate should be 2% higher. It's 2% higher. You've got to get rid of about a quarter of the federal budget because of the interest rates on T-bills that we'll have to pay is, you know, will be 12 or 14%. And we can't afford that. So we don't, we're, we can't do what we need to do and we can't go on. And so right now the medicine is perceived as worse than the disease, but the disease is so chronic that it's not sustainable. Now, forgive me, my final question is going to be slightly lighter than the other ones. But could, could you cast Joe Biden and Donald Trump back as a, using your classical brain, as a sort of classical figure from history? Is there anyone you can compare those figures to? I don't think either one of them is Periclean, but Alcibiades was a uh, much younger dynamic figure than Donald Trump. But he had some of the same talents. He, when he went into a room, people wanted to talk to him. He said outrageous things. He was multi-talented, but he was also kind of a slave to his appetites. He was excessive. But he, if you look at the Sicilian expedition, should have never gone there. It was his idea. But if they had to listen to him and gone straight to Syracuse, they would have won. If they had gone the final battle at Sinocephala, uh, I mean, at uh, Agospotami, if they had listened to him and followed it, they would have won. So he was somebody that was considered so outrageously a violator of norms, but so instinctively with an animal cunning. And I think Aristophanes said he was, a. when you raise a lion, you better deal with him. You know, if you raise him, you better make use, use of him. But he, he's a very uh, Trumpian figure. Biden is, he reminds me of one of these figures. They're the minor figures. The names don't matter, but they, they appear in the, the pages of Cicero, Piso, or somebody like that. These minor old senatorial totems that are fossilized and they come out and they tell Caesar, you can't do this. Or they tell Cicero, you got to, and, and they're completely, that, that Roman Senate, by oh, 040 BC was completely corrupt, bankrupt. They had been making a fortune off the new imperial acquisitions in Greece and, and North Africa, and nobody took them seriously. They were pompous. And a guy like Caesar just looked at them and said, you know what, these guys are completely corrupt, and I'm going to just deal with them the way I want. And there was a couple of people like Cato, especially with maybe Cicero that had some principles, but most of the senatorial class was bank. So he was a typical Roman late senator. You can name about six or seven people like him, but he, Biden is corrupt. He's ancient. Uh, his family have used him as a lever to, to bring in an untoward fashion profits. And he was always incompetent. That's who's president now. And it really is. It's kind of frightening. People, it's very ironic in America. Everybody was frightened about Trump. But the result was that North Korea behaved, Iran, we got out of the deal and they didn't dare do anything. Israel was uh, well protected. Japan was well protected. Australia kind of liked what we were doing by confronting China. Europe hated Donald Trump, but they increased the NATO budget $100 billion, which comes in handy now with Ukraine, with their depots are full. The United States military budget went up. We would we had a plan to keep Bagram Air Force Base and the residual force, and everybody hated it, and they got what they wanted, and it turned out to be an utter ungodly disaster. Well, let's hope there's no civil wars uh, around the corner. I hope so, too. <laughs> I hope so, too. Thank you so much, Victor, for joining us. I really appreciate okay. it. Um, okay, well, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. 
If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.